She is the longest serving British monarch in history. She has reigned over an era of great consequence and dramatic change. She's lived through World War II, the Cold War, and everything afterward. She counts among her prime ministers Winston Churchill, Clement Attlee, Margaret Thatcher, and Tony Blair. She's met more American presidents than any head of state in her lifetime. She is Queen Elizabeth II. From June 2nd to June 5th of this year, the United Kingdom celebrated her Platinum Jubilee, an unprecedented 70 years on the throne. And what a 70 years it's been. Like anyone who has been in the public eye for so long, she's gone through her share of ups and downs. She's been scrutinized all of her life. She's been criticized for what she's done and not done. But 70 years after taking the throne, and now in her 96th year of life, she remains as popular and beloved as ever. She is an indelible symbol of continuity and service in a time of great disruption. And if she lives for another two years, she will surpass French King Louis XIV for the longest verifiable reign in modern history. In short, she has lived a truly epic life. Our guests today have just published a remarkable book titled Queen Elizabeth II, An Oral History. Their names are Deborah Hart Strober and Gerald Strober. Previously, they've written oral histories about Presidents Kennedy, Nixon, and Reagan, Evangelist Billy Graham, the Dalai Lama, and Rudy Giuliani. And I'm excited to have them on this episode to discuss the Queen and her place in history. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Mini Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Thank you for being on our show. We really appreciate it. Um, so most of our listeners are American, and they aren't familiar with what a jubilee is. So what happens during a jubilee? Well, it's celebration of of the subjects, uh, good attributes, the wonderful things about the person. Perhaps you alluded to things that this monarch may not have done, but it's basically to celebrate 
what the monarch has done right. So what led you to write this book and why specifically in oral history? Well, you know, we like the idea of letting our interviewees tell the story, not giving our own opinions. We want to give the reading public a, an unbiased view in terms of where we're coming from. And in terms of what led us to write on this particular subject, we like large subjects. As you had mentioned earlier, we wrote about Kennedy, Nixon, Reagan, the Dalai Lama, Billy Graham. And like all authors, we were searching for a subject that not only we feel readers would be interested in, but that we would be interested in, that we would be enthusiastic about. And Deborah has long been a kind of a monarchist and very knowledgeable <laughs> about the British monarchy. Uh, I just as, want to reply to that. You know, we fought a little war a few centuries ago to get rid of the monarchy, but I'm not the only American monarchist, so to speak. A lot of Americans are monarchists. They wake up at three o'clock in the morning to watch a royal event. Right. <laughs> I, I was not necessarily a monarchist, but I had great respect for the queen. And we thought, you know, this is going to be a challenge. And it was because when we first went to London and started to ask people to be interviewed on the record, we were kind of viewed as American Yankees in the queen's court. There was a certain hesitation, but we were able to overcome that and interview more than 120 of the Queen's associates and contemporaries. That's that's amazing. So, uh, and yes, uh, you mentioned the the little war, the little quarrel that the Americans and the British had twice, of course, not just once. Um, right. Now, your book starts, and, and before I ask the question, uh, you're absolutely right. There are a lot of Americans who uh, are absolutely fascinated by the monarchy, and, uh, you know, you, all you have to do is, is look at the ratings for the, the, the crown uh, on Netflix. Um, so your book starts with the queen's accession to the throne in 1952 upon the death of her father, King George VI. So take us back into that world uh, and, and what kind of person the queen was. How, how did she take that news? Well, she was devastated. She adored her father. She knew he was not well, but you know, death is always a shock. She went off on a trip uh, to Africa, and she knew he was um, uh, ill, but you know, when that word comes, it's still a terrible wrench. Yes, and they were just beginning what was going to be a long trip that would take them eventually to Australia, and they had stopped over in Africa to kind of catch their breaths, and suddenly here's this news that George VI has died, and she is suddenly confronted with the reality as a woman in her mid-twenties, she is now the queen, and how then to proceed? So it was 
quite a moment in history. And it was a wrench for the Duke of Edinburgh, her husband, her consort, because, you know, he didn't know. They were enjoying their lives, but now he was thrust into the role of having to walk the proverbial six paces behind his wife. And this also goes back to the whole sense of her becoming queen, because when she was a youngster, or certainly in her early years, uh, there was no thought that her father would become king. And when Edward VIII, his brother, abdicated, suddenly she was directly in the line of succession to her father, who became George VI. So their whole lives were kind of turned upside down. So in a sense, she was prepared to assume the role of monarch, although this had not been her initial destiny. Yeah, it, it, so that's a great segue because you just mentioned the, the famous abdication of her uncle, King Edward VIII, and anyone who's familiar with the history knows that here he was as king, uh, but in his first year as king, he abdicated because he was, because of the opposition to him marrying an American divorcee, Wallace Simpson. So uh, you read so much about how traumatic that was for the royal family. Um, what was that experience like for the queen? I mean, she was so young at the time, but was it traumatic for her as well? She had adored her uncle. He was a glamorous figure to her. And, you know, but suddenly, as Jerry just said, she was thrust into a new role, which she had, they had a lovely life as, um, you know, uh, royals living a beautiful life. And, but, but suddenly that all changed her now being the heiress to the throne. And, um, you know, an interesting sidebar about Edward and Wallace, um, they uh, were, they visited Hitler at one point, and there were uh, uh, plans afoot that if and when, because Hitler was expecting to conquer Britain, that uh, the king, King George, would be disposed of and Edward would be put back on the throne with Wallace as his queen. And of, thank God that never happened. That's a very ugly chapter in uh, King Edward VIII's life uh, to, to think that a former king, an abdicated king, meeting with the enemy, who would be the man who would become the enemy. Uh, now, the queen lived through World War II, which is amazing to think about. Uh, she was in her teenage years when it broke out. She was the princess, the daughter of the reigning king and queen. So what was that experience like for her? I think this was a crucial life-changing experience for her. She saw her parents remain in London, visit bombed out sections of East London, uh, famously bathe in one inch of water, maybe once or twice a week. Uh, they were heroic figures to their public. It was often said how great of the public to have such a good king. And George VI would say, how great for the monarch to have such a great public. And this was the life-changing experience. And she learned duty that you always have to fulfill your responsibilities as best you can. 
and you always must be a sovereign who understands the public and the people. And she was a serving officer in the ATS during the war. She wasn't hiding out somewhere. She was a working royal during World War II. And uh, she, uh, you know, so when victory came on VE Day, um, her parents actually allowed her to mingle with the crowd for a while to hear the cheers, you know, when the family came out on the balcony, the king and the queen and Winston Churchill. That, that, um, Elizabeth was in the crowd enjoying the spectacle of her family and the prime minister being cheered on the balcony. Hmm. So how how did she meet Philip? You mentioned him early on. So uh, how did he enter her life? Well, actually, she met him for the first time at the age of eight when they both attended the wedding of Princess Marina of Greece. But at 13 is the moment the sparks started to fly when she and her parents visited the Naval Academy where Philip was a cadet. And it was from that age of 13 that she started to carry a torch for this young, uh, handsome uh, um, They called him a Viking, yes. even though he was of Greek extraction. Right. Right. <laughs> uh, he was very, very handsome, and she knew what she wanted right from that age. And it was the start of a just a, a beautiful, lifelong love between them. Um, so... We Americans, we have our presidential inaugurations every four years. Uh, in the UK, they have coronations. Uh, and uh, thankfully, it, it, it's been a very long time since we've had, uh, they've had a coronation. What are those coronations like in the UK? And what was Queen Elizabeth, uh, what was her coronation like? Well, no knock on our American inaugurations, but let's face it, nobody does spectacle the way the British do. It was glorious, you know, the procession um, and to the Abbey, the whole ceremony of um, the entrance up to the Abbey, the anointing, the, all that ritual. Uh, and when you think of the fact that at first it was decided it couldn't be televised and there was an uproar and then it was decided to televise it. So for the first time ever in history, millions of people were able to watch the entire ceremony from beginning to end. And that was the first time many people in Britain actually saw television. Uh, a number of families rented a television set just to watch the coronation. And people in a neighborhood would be gathered around a television set to watch this incredible spectacle, uh, spectacle, as Deb said. And also, it was a moment of turning in Britain. In Britain, Britain has still dealing with austerity. Uh, the war ended in the spring of 45, but here we are in 1953 for the coronation, and the country is still trying to get out of the economic doldrums. And there's a spark of hope, the new Elizabethan age, the young, glamorous queen is somehow going to lift the nation in uh, both a spiritual and practical manner. 
And you have to imagine that uh, here is a, a queen in her 20s basically having to be on center stage for a once in a lifetime event for her whole country, for the whole world. And so the amount of pressure must have been uh, just incredible. And by all accounts, she she pulled it off per- flawlessly. She certainly did. She was regal in every sense of the word, in every gesture she made. And the people were ecstatic. And this was a pattern that would endure for the rest of her life. So I've heard people ask, uh, especially, you know, when you when you talk to kids or when you see somebody that might not know that much about the monarchy. I've heard people ask, why does the UK still even have a monarchy, especially (laughs) if it if it has a system, a political system with uh, democratic features? So what what would you say? Well, the monarchy brings a lot of dollars to Britain. I mean, tourists would still come to go to the theater, but the whole image of standing in front of Buckingham Palace and so on, I mean, that's cash. Yes, and also I think, you know, we've had many people in Britain say to us, well, how would we deal with a president? How would that work? (laughs) Here here you have a system that has worked for centuries, sometimes very uh, uh, in a very good sense, in a very efficient sense, sometimes not. But what would they replace the monarchy with? And also the monarch as the head of state, she is the symbol of everything that is British Uh, It would be almost impossible to think of Britain without the monarchy, although although, uh, when Charles becomes king, as he will, his popularity is rather mixed. Uh, He will have to struggle to keep the monarchy on the same footing as over the decades of her of his mother i just want to remind uh our listeners that uh the british actually (laughs) did execute king charles the first there was a very difficult interregnum as it were and then the monarchy was restored and i think britain realized what a big mistake that that was to get rid of the monarch, and it hasn't happened. Nobody's threatened the monarch with execution since. Yeah, we we can uh, we can blame Oliver Cromwell for that, right? Right, big mistake. <laughs> well, and, and that that's you you bring up a very fascinating point. And uh, in, in your book, Winston Churchill, uh, you quote him saying that. The queen is more than a symbol. She is a unifying force. And uh, I've read uh, an essay by him where he says that, uh, you know, he very affectionately refers to the Americans and, and says, well, they're, you know, they are our cousins and we uh, we have a great friendship. But, you know, says that the Americans are wrong because uh, the head of state, the symbol is a partisan figure, that being the president. So, his argument is that there's no unifying force there, as opposed to in the UK, where you have the head of government, a partisan figure, but then you need something transcendent, uh, a head of state. So that's their argument. Of course, Americans would say, well, uh, no one should be uh, considered above everyone else. So it's a wonder. The quarrel continues. The wonderful quarrel between um, the Amer- the cousins, the Americans and the British continues. But you make a, a very important point, Richard, and that is 
the unifying force, because not only is the queen, the sovereign, the unifying force within the United Kingdom, but think of the Commonwealth. Think of these more than 50 nations that are associated. She came at a time, came to the throne at a time when the British Empire was falling apart. The loss of India, the loss of nations in the African continent and in the Far East, and suddenly the Commonwealth of Nations is born, and she has been the head of that Commonwealth all of these years. She has been the great unifying force, not only within the British Isles and the United Kingdom, but for nations throughout the world. And the Commonwealth today still stands as a testament to her uh, vision of keeping everything together as the empire was falling apart. So what is the role of a queen? What what can she do and what can't she do? And and I ask that because uh, there's a quote in your, you quote uh, Lord Weather, Wetherill. Uh, not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. That's but correct. Yeah. Uh, and he said that don't inf- don't underestimate the big influence of the queen. She gives the prime minister an audience every week and none of us know ever know what is said. So yeah, what what are her powers, formal and informal? Well, Lord Wetherill is spot on as the Brits would say. Yes, she uh reigns but does not rule. But she does have these weekly audiences, and over the years, she has been able to express her views, which she, she is respected by her prime minister, so obviously she must influence some of the government policy, uh, which comes out of that. And over the years, she's also become the educator. She has accumulated so much knowledge that she educates her successive prime ministers as to Britain's history, which is fascinating. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 
So you mentioned the Commonwealth of Nations before that. Uh, and just for our listeners, the Commonwealth, it was established in 1949 before just before her reign. And it's basically an association of nations that had been in the British Empire. So what's her role in, in that body? Well, she is the head of the Commonwealth. And the Commonwealth nations, the heads of state of the Commonwealth meet every two years in one place or another. Uh, we were there in Mozambique uh, when the queen uh, uh, visited there just after the Commonwealth meeting in Durban, South Africa. And so we saw all of these people in their traditional garb, a fascinating group of leaders from all over the world. And she has presided over that and kept it together. And this, this is crucial. And what will happen now when, or soon, relatively soon, when Charles becomes the sovereign, bets are off. We're not sure that some of the nations in the Commonwealth will continue. They may want to continue an unofficial status. But just to um, indicate... Uh, the limitation of the Queen's own powers. We had press credentials and we were standing on the uh, balcony le leading into the president of Mozambique's home where she they were to exchange gifts and so on before a gala dinner in a special pavilion. So we're standing on the balcony and the Queen comes up with uh, Prince Philip and they, uh, we are Americans, so we don't bow to them, but we smile. They smile back at us, and they go into the house, and then some, a few moments later, they leave and head for the pavilion. And there are toasts to Her Majesty the Queen and, and Prince Philip, and then uh, you would normally think she would be about to deliver her speech. No, there was silence. So uh, we were thinking, what's happening? So suddenly we saw Jeffrey Crawford, who is a wonderful man who had facilitated a lot of our interviews, run back into the house. And I whispered to Jeffrey, what's going on? He emerges two minutes later. The queen left her spectacles on the table. And I have to do it. So he dashes back. Only then could she read the speech that not she, but her government had prepared. Right. As Deb points out, she cannot speak in an occasion like that extemporaneously. The speech is carefully crafted by the government, approved by the palace, and that's the speech she makes. Those are the remarks she makes. So in a sense, it must be very frustrating over all of these decades not to be able to speak your mind. Now, Charles speaks <laughs> his mind yes. on a number of issues, the environment, agriculture, relationships with various religions. At one time, he said that when he would become sovereign, he would be the defender of faiths, not as traditionally the defender of the faith, the Anglican faith. He since has now backed off on that and said he will be defender of faith. But we know with Charles, it's a wild card. He may say things that exceed the constitutional limitations of the monarchy. 
But he has been, in all fairness to Charles, he has been a rock of stability to his mother during these trying times, as we all know now from last week's Jubilee celebrations. Her Majesty has mobility issues. She was on the the, um, balcony at Buckingham Palace the first day with her cousin, the Duke of Kent. He... He, um, they, she was very animated. She expressed opinions you could see, you know, they were talking and she was responding to what was going on before her in the streets. And then the next day it was announced she would not be attending the, the um, service of Thanksgiving at St. Paul's because she had been uncomfortable. So that went on without her the last day, and then there was a concert and so on. The last day of the Jubilee celebration, she astounded the public by appearing once more on the balcony, dressed beautifully. The first time she had been in a mauve outfit, which just complimented, she looked like a wonderful grandma. And on the last day, she appeared in a green outfit, stunning again, Add to the cheer, the the audience, the people below went wild because they hadn't expected her to appear standing on the last day of her jubilee. But that speaks to the queen's strength, enormous strength. And also, to be fair to Charles, uh, it's widely believed that he was something of a disappointment to his father. His father was very strict. Uh, He was sent to the school. Uh, that his Jordan's father, town. yes, a very strict uh, school his father had attended. And there was a sense that he wasn't really up to it. But think about it. Here's a man who was prepared for this job for all of these years. He's now go- approaching his mid-70s. And the only way that he can assume the job that he's prepared for is if his mother passes away. So from a human point of view, there is this tension between, yes, I would like finally to be the sovereign, but I can only get there if I have this great personal tragedy in my life. And it would be a great personal tragedy. He really adores his mother. At one point during the festivities the other day, he referred to Her Majesty Mummy, And the crowd went wild, that very personal view that he has of of the sovereign. She's mummy. Yeah, and I I think that's part of the 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 immense burden of of being in that royal family and something that oftentimes uh, just people can't possibly understand or appreciate. Um, And also, I just have to plug... Uh, that there's a, a just a very uh, adorable video of the Queen and Paddington Bear. Yeah. Uh, my my wife is a big Paddington Bear fan, and so we watched that together, and it was uh, remarkable because she's you know essentially she's acting in the video, and I just it's it's a it's a fun thing to watch. She and the, a, with James Bond too. There was one with James Bond. That's true. Yeah. That's true. No, she has a, a very good sense of humor, and she's known for mimicry. Uh, we were told when we interviewed the Reverend Ian Press, uh, Paisley. Uh, Paisley, sorry, uh, thinking of Elvis. Uh, <laughs> Ian Paisley, the Northern Ireland Unionist leader who, who's passed away, and he told us, well, the Queen, I'm told, does a great imitation of me. 
and it's and he's regarded it as the severe sincerest form of flattery <laughs> even well, though she said negative things about him well if only we could be a fly in the wall and see the the person behind uh, the spectacle uh so that's a good segue um we, we can you, you've already mentioned a little bit about her personality. And in your book, you quote Sir Oliver Wright as saying that in private, she has the most girlish giggle you can think of. She's a very normal person. And another one of your interviewees, Sir Adam Ridley, wrote, she absolutely naturally took it over, it being the crown. Uh, nobody seemed to be worried lest she should be unable to rise to expectations. It was right from the start a flawless performance. So it seems that the queen has this nice balance of being both approachable but also regal. H how did she develop this? And and not as we know from history, not every monarch is like that. So how was the UK just lucky to have someone like her as queen? Her father tutored her. In his wisdom, he said, you know, you have to, you can't react too much uh, when you're in public because if you smile a lot, people will misinterpret that. If you frown, people will misinterpret that. So you must keep a um, very serene face in public. And, and there is a tension uh, within the monarchy, on the one hand, over the centuries, there has been a certain mystique and mystery to the monarchy that one could never really apprehend what was going on, you know, within the walls of a palace. On the other hand, the modern need to be more accessible to the public. So the queen goes out on these walkabouts and has tea with someone in a in town, uh, in their home, and uh, people are invited to garden parties where the queen and then Prince Philip would mingle with the guests and make small talk. So there is that tension between maintaining the mystery of the monarchy and at the same time letting people know who you are uh, pulling back the curtain to a certain degree. And there was actually a documentary some years ago showing the family at leisure, the uh, Duke of Edinburgh was uh, grilling sausages and the children were romping around on the grass. And it kind of backfired, didn't it? It backfired because it seemed stilted. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, you, you suddenly saw these people trying to be <laughs> normal. <laughs> And you knew that that wasn't what their lives were really like. But over yeah. the years, I think the Queen, uh, largely at Philip's prodding and direction, uh, has made herself much more accessible. And I think some of the what you saw over this weekend of the Jubilee is the adulation of the public, not necessarily for the monarchy, but for this monarch. Exactly. So, uh, so you're saying that we're not going to see a reality show anytime soon. The real, the real housewives of Windsor Castle. We're not going to see that any, <laughs> yeah. anytime. Probably not. And I think that's a good thing. <laughs> so she obviously she she's a queen, but she's also a mother. And you alluded to the relationship between her and her son. Um, she was a, a, a sister, uh, a daughter, um, a grandmother, an auntie, uh, 
every relationship she has, though, as as uh, affectionate it is, is defined in so many ways by the fact that she is the monarch. So how is she able to fulfill those roles of being mummy, of being grandmother and yet being queen at the same time? What what is she like as a as a mother and a grandmother? Well, it, it's it's been difficult at times as a mother. Um, she had to have a certain formality. For instance, she went on a tour for six months and she was away. And when she arrived home, she didn't embrace her uh, children. She shook hands with them, which shocked, I think, a lot of Americans. Uh, and unlike uh, Princess Diana, subsequently, who, you know, would just uh, embrace her children. But um, as a, a, a sister, it was a great wrench for her to act as she did in prohibiting her sister from marrying uh, group Captain Peter Townsend. Because she loved her sister and she knew this was what her sister wanted. But it couldn't be. It couldn't be in terms of her role as a defender of the faith of her sister marrying a divorced man, which she was. And as a, um, a grandma, she adored her grandchildren and still does. She just loves her grandchildren. Yes, so it's difficult to be both a queen, uh, a world-famous household name with certain symbolic responsibilities, and at the same time being a parent and a grandparent, now a great-grandparent, and seeing that her children have had the problems that lots of children have had, divorce, uh, to some degree scandal with Andrew, certainly. So she has to, at all times, maintain her composure and posture as the sovereign, while at the same time dealing with issues that almost every family deals with these days. That's not an easy job. And I just wanted to mention, uh, Jerry mentioned Andrew. He had been uh, reputedly her favorite son many years ago, and there might be a, 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 an emotional reason. Many years ago, Prince Philip and Mike Parker, his aide, uh, went off on a cruise of, what, six months on the Britannia, and when he came back, there were all kinds of rumors about, was the marriage over? Well, she conceived and bore Prince Andrew on his return. So yes, the marriage was on. They had a relationship. So Andrew was that special person in her life. But as Jerry said, he really um, disrespected the royal family terribly in recent years. And, and he was banned from official celebrations now. And most recently, the other day, it was announced that he wouldn't be seen at all because reportedly he has contracted COVID. Now, is that a convenient excuse? What do you think? <laughs> yeah. Well, Andrew, as the Brits would say, has let the side down. Randy Andy, as he was known since his yeah. teen years. Yeah. Yeah. But she a, loved a, him. He was her mm -hmm. son. 
Yeah, very sad story there. Um, now, the Queen's first prime minister, it's almost hard to believe, was the legendary Winston Churchill. What was their relationship like? Obviously, he was this this elder statesman and she was this young queen. Uh, and also, what were most of her relationships like between her and the prime ministers? Well, he was the monarchist par excellence. I mean, he was from the old regime and empirist. Uh, and he adored her, she adored him, and he was her World War II hero. You know, the same as seen on the balcony at Buckingham Palace on VED. And um, his farewell dinner uh, was very, I think probably very wrenching to her because she was, he was moving on and a new regime had come in, you know, like a wonderful prime minister had been voted out of office after the war, after all he had done for the world, really, basically. And But her relationships, she had respectful relationships with all of her prime ministers. The one prime minister uh, that certainly uh, there was tension with was Margaret Thatcher. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they didn't really get along that well, and certainly the Queen was opposed, uh, at least privately, uh, to Thatcher's views on apartheid and uh, on a number of other issues. But she has to be correct. Uh, She, every Tuesday evening, would meet with the Prime Minister in private, uh, they, uh, so much so that there was one occasion we were told about when, for some reason, Philip entered the room where she was meeting with the prime minister and he was told, please leave. So even her husband and her greatest confidant could not be there. I'm sure that after each of these sessions, she and Philip shared what had happened. Uh, but there was this uh, barrier. But she did have quite good relationships. Uh, The queen is thought to be conservative on the political side uh, uh, and therefore maybe had better relationships with some of the more conservative prime ministers. Yeah, that's fascinating. And despite the conservatism of uh, Prime Minister Thatcher, uh, I I guess when you have two very strong-willed people. Uh, and here you have two two women running the United Kingdom. You're just inevitably going to get some tension, it sounds like. Yeah. 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 Uh, and, and you mentioned the, the conservatism. Obviously, the queen is a nonpartisan figure, but uh, Sir Michael uh, Polliser, uh, again, not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Polliser, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But you, you quote him saying to the extent she has a political concept, it is a conservative one. So uh, I guess that there's kind of uh, a sense that, that that that's her political orientation. But of course, she has to maintain the nonpartisan posture as well. Exactly. And it's you, a very difficult balance, actually. And you know, Richard, you make a very good point because it, it could be, this is conjecture, of course, but it could be that some of Charles' uh, uh, pet issues and some of his views uh, maybe a kind of a counter to the more conservative views of his parents. Uh, Philip certainly was uh, a, a conservative person, although 
he was very open to new ideas. He promoted new ideas. He was interested in invention. He was interested in innovation. When he first, when the queen first came to the throne, it was Philip who largely renovated and updated the technology at the palace. So he was a man who was conservative in his leanings and perhaps lifestyle, but at the same time was quite open to new ideas and new concepts. Prince Philip, in our opinion, got, as we Americans say, a bad rap for some of his more controversial comments about, uh, famously about Asians on an, uh, you know, and that kind of thing. But actually, some of our interviewees suggested he did it to stoke debate and get people talking about, like, the opposite kind of a Norman Lear kind of character, right? Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that that some of his comments reflected the prejudices of an upper-class English uh, aristocrat of his his time. And he was also prickly. Uh, We have one (laughs) anecdote in the book where he flew his uh, uh, RAF, Royal Air Force, plane over the Atlantic and landed in Atlantic Canada in a driving rainstorm in the middle of the night. And the commander of the airbase came out to greet him. And uh, the commander said, how was your flight, sir? And Philip said, have you flown before? And the commander said, yes. And Philip said, well, it was like that. But uh, but Prince Philip also, I think it was on that trip, uh, there was some kind of dinner and it was a bit rustic and he finished his main dish and put his utensils on the side of the plate to be cleared away. And uh, his host said, save your forks or there's pie. So he has quite a, a, a personality and sense of humor himself. Yes. Oh, yeah. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 
So the queen, as you alluded to earlier, she is the head of the church. She is the defender of the faith. Um, your interviewees say different things about her faith. Some say that she is a devout Anglican. Others say not so much. So what's your impression? She doesn't wear it on her sleeve. Uh, she has a chaplain and uh, the, the dean of Windsor, and she attends services. You notice, uh, for example, when she's at Balmoral, she will attend Sunday service. Uh, so there is that ritualized kind of uh, activity, which is expected of someone who is the defender of the faith. At the same time, it's difficult to know what she really believes privately. I, I think she probably is... I don't know if the word devout is applicable here, but she probably does have a relatively strong faith. Uh, what will happen with her successor, that is not something we, we can predict or know at this point. But he's already gone back on his yes. uh, statement that he wanted to be defender of faith. He realizes that was a... Subject. And let's remember also that while over the, year, the 70 years, uh, statistically, attendance in the Anglican churches in Britain has gone down considerably, the Anglican communion is still a very strong force in Africa and a number of the countries who still remain part of the Commonwealth. So the Anglican church does have a role, and she has the symbolic role as the head of the church. But on the other hand, she has now designated, she's been become very close to Camilla, Charles's true love of his life, and she has designated her to become Queen Camilla, not some, you know, a vague title as his consort. She will serve as Queen Camilla. In so she is saying, yes, I am head of the church, uh, which doesn't condone divorce. Marriage is indissoluble, but she is going to serve as Queen Camilla. So that's quite a statement. Philip was quite interested in religion. He was uh, a proponent of interfaith, interreligious relationships. He was quite well read in uh, religious uh, uh, materials, and he used to like to question the bishops. Uh, there's this tradition that each bishop spends a weekend with uh, the queen and Philip, of course, when he was alive. And he, at dinner with the bishop would often question the bishop on matters of theology, and the queen would sit there uh, kind of bemused and taking it all in, and showed that Philip had a very active, inquisitive, inquiring mind, uh, and was not afraid to take on even the bishops who presumably were experts in the theology of, of the Anglican Communion. So uh, you, you just mentioned Charles and Camilla, and of course, uh, during her reign, uh, of all the the things that have happened, uh, Princess Diana uh, obviously was a, a something that will always be a part of her reign. Uh, you quote that from uh, Adnan Khashoggi, uh, who said that the conflict between the royal family 
in Princess Diana was a conflict between conservatism and liberalism in some ways that these people being the royal family are conservative. This woman being Princess Diana was more liberal and she stole the show from her own family. Do you think that that's true? Well, she did certainly from Charles. You know, you could say, sense in their public appearances his growing irritation whenever they'd be photographed together. People wanted to hear from her not from him, and he a couple of times made some cutting remarks about her, uh, which would one could only say were uncharitable. But you saw uh, with the uh, relationship that Diana had with uh, Dodi Al-Fayed, uh, the son of the uh, billionaire Mohammed Al-Fayed and the nephew of Adnan Khashoggi, uh, you saw there the kind of tension that the Queen was living with, uh, these conflicting uh, elements. On the one hand, was Diana seriously considering uh, Dodi Al-Fayed to be a husband? And how would that relate to the royal family? Because, of course, while Diana was out of the picture, in a sense, officially, there were these two sons who were very much part of the royal family, and Dodi al-Fayed would be their stepfather. On the other hand, you had Mohammed al-Fayed, who had been shunned by the British establishment, despite the outstanding financial success he had achieved, and the fact that he had employed thousands of people in Britain at a time when unemployment was rife. And he seemed to be pushing his son into this. And what about Dodie? Was Dodie just seeing this as a, as a fling? Uh, we know he had another girlfriend stashed in a boat uh, on the Mediterranean while he was, you know, having this relationship with Diana. And then Diana, what was her purpose? What did she want out of this relationship? Was this real or was she doing this to spite or thumb her nose, as it were, at the royal family. And, you know, when she died, one of the things that uh, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II was faulted for was she didn't understand the popularity of Diana and she didn't uh, come right back to London uh, right away. And she was told by her prime minister, who was a very wise man, Tony Blair, I believe, you better get down to London and pay tribute to Diana and make some comment. And she did go publicly on the air to talk about Diana's virtues as a compassionate person and so on, that kind of thing. I think history will show that the queen received a bad rap on that one. Mm -hmm. uh, think about what was happening. First, you have sudden death, and it's not simple to relate to sudden death. We've had the unfortunately experience in our own lives of dealing with this on two or three occasions. And secondly, the grandchildren, they're staying with their grandparents. How do you tell them, your mother is dead? You're going to wake up and find out this vibrant, loving mother is gone. You're never going to see her again. And the relationship with Charles. And I don't think in those first hours, anyone could have predicted the outpouring of grief 
that surfaced in London and, and throughout and throughout the United Kingdom. It was and the unprecedented. World, the world. It was unprecedented. I remember you mentioned Sir Oliver Wright, and uh, he told us that sometime after that, a young couple had died in an automobile accident in, in his town, and suddenly there was this outpouring of flowers and so on. This had, things had never happened like this before in Britain. So I think to some degree, uh, the initial response of the monarchy has to be understood in the larger context of this is an unprecedented event which affects members of her immediate family how to respond. But to her credit, when it was pointed out by her ever loyal prime minister, your majesty, you must get to London and react, she did so immediately. Right, and I think again, she made a great comeback because there were people that were saying, that's the end of the monarchy. The queen, the queen messed up. She didn't get back to London, as Deb said immediately. So she messed up. That's it. It's all going to disappear. Uh, the public, uh, with this great outcry of grief and, and manifestation of grief at Diana, uh, the people's princess, uh, no one ever called the queen the people's queen. Uh, it's all going to fade away. And then here is the resolve of this woman, Elizabeth II, to remain. She's not going to give up. She's not going to walk away from this the way her uncle did. She is the queen, and she is going to be the sovereign of her people. And that's exactly how it's played out. And we saw that this past weekend in this incredible outpouring of adulation for the queen. So uh, we are a podcast about presidents. Uh, officially and privately, she has visited the United States eight times since 1951, when she was a guest of President Harry S. Truman. Um, she has had four state visits, five state dinners, two unofficial uh, visits since then. No other head of state has met more American presidents. Uh so and then uh, you also note that venturing across the United States, she's made countless stops from supermarkets to Hollywood. She she's expressed affection and hope for the United States. So uh, what are some of the highlights of her relationships, her meetings with American presidents? You, you talked about her uh, meeting with Eisenhower after the Suez Canal crisis and her meeting with with President Reagan at Windsor. So what are some of those moments that stand out? Well, of course, she had known uh, President Eisenhower in Europe during World War II, and so there was great affection and respect for him. And uh, she uh, had a wonderful relationship with President Reagan. They both adored horse flesh, and they went riding together. So I think those were two highlights of her trips. I, she probably, we don't know for sure, but she must have enjoyed Harry Truman's frankness. He was, uh, you know, he said what he thought. He didn't keep secrets. And she probably respected that. I can't vouch for that, but I would think that, you know, she had respect for his frankness. Right. She's met with 13 of the last 14 U.S. presidents. The only president she did not meet with was Lyndon Baines Johnson. And as Deb said, she had a, 
a great affection for Dwight the Eisenhower based uh, beginning, of course, with Eisenhower leading the uh, uh, forces, the Allied forces in World War II in the European theater. Um, she danced with Gerald Ford in the White House. Uh, she greeted um, uh, Bush and the two Bushes. Uh, her most recent visit, of course, at the palace was with uh, Joe Biden. She likes America. She has a great affinity for America. Remember that on the day of 9-11, she had the American flag raised at Buckingham Palace on the national anthem played. Uh, she knighted Rudy Giuliani for that. Maybe she <laughs> would have okay. second thoughts about that now. Uh, but at the time, uh, she, I think, was kind of symbolically showing her great respect and affection for America and the American people. And I think that to a large degree, the American people have responded in a very positive way toward her. So not every British monarch is is uh, beloved and popular. And you just mentioned uh, Charles I, case in point. Um, but even in the modern age, uh, the monarchy has waxed and waned. What has been the secret to her popularity? And and here you have a woman who has reigned over an era of incredible change, but she is that one constant. So what's her secret? I think dedication. She has never once faltered. Uh, she is always there fulfilling her duties. You know, she can't wake up one morning and say, gee, I'm tired today. I'm not going to go and cut that ribbon at this new place. She shows up. She does her duty as the monarch. She responds to people. There's an, a warmth about her, which you saw in those balcony appearances just the other day. Uh, she has a wonderful smile in spite of all of the sadness in her life. And one of the great sadnesses was the death of Prince Philip. She has a beautiful smile. And imagine uh, how difficult this must be in the sense she wakes up every morning knowing I have to be the queen today. I have to be what people expect, what my uh constituents expect, what my subjects expect, what the world expects. Uh, I cannot deviate from that. Of course, she has her private moment. She has her vacation. She has a wonderful lifestyle. Uh, she is quite personally wealthy, although uh, not nearly as wealthy as, as many other uh, uh, British financiers and others are. But she has to be the queen. She has to be on the top of her game every time there's some public uh, occasion or when she's meeting with ambassadors, governors of general, uh, presidents, prime ministers. Uh, this is a tough job. And somehow she has found the inner strength to perform this in a most admirable way. And another thing, you know, she's 96 years old. Her mother, it is true, lived to 101, and we hope the queen will as well. But she knows that 
she is mortal, a mortal being, and she has to face her own demise too, which privately must, in her quiet moments, must weigh on her. I think also uh, you you ask about, and I think the word you used, Richard, was a good one, the constant, the constancy of her life. I think some of this, maybe a great deal of this, came from her parents. Uh, the King, King George VI used to talk about we four, uh, the King, Queen Elizabeth, who later, of course, became the Queen Mother, Princess Margaret Rose, the younger sister, and Elizabeth. And there was this sense of we are a team. They looked at it as a team, and that's the way uh, Elizabeth, her mother, and King George VI raised the two girls. Unfortunately, Margaret, later in life, kind of deviated from this, perhaps out of the frustration of being someone who was never going to be queen, who was never going to have the public adulation, who never was going to be in the forefront of life in the UK. But they were a team. And I, I think one thing uh, about the Queen's popularity is that it, it does transcend uh, her own country. As you mentioned, people around the world have great respect for her. Even Americans who uh, are inherently anti, mostly at least, uh, anti-monarchists. But I, I think in the end, when you see a, a person so committed to duty, uh, even if it's uh, – you know, for an institution that uh, one might believe in or not believe in, that when you see that sense of devotion to duty throughout an entire lifetime, it's very hard to not respect uh, respect that. And so I think that's part of part of why she is so beloved around the world. Right. Absolutely. It, it even extends to receiving people she might not necessarily want to spend time with. Oh, we had a funny story about that, uh, you know, um, Mr. Putin uh, came to uh, Britain some years ago. I've heard of him. He's been in the news lately. Yeah. So, uh, you know, she had a a personal antipathy to him, but the foreign office, you know, they have to receive this man. So she happened to be in the presence of one of her ministers, a wonderful um, a gentleman by the name of um, Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett, who happens to be blind, he's incredible, but he's had a wonderful career, and he had his guide dog next to him, and um, there was the Queen, um, Lord Blunkett, his guide dog, and Putin, and the guide dog took one look at Putin and started growling at him. He was That guide dog was ferocious, and Putin kind of stepped back a little. So the queen bent down and kept patting the dog as if to say, good dog, good dog. She, kept, she stroked that dog a number of times like she was signaling, well, I don't like him either. That's amazing. And it, and it, it probably shows uh, a bit of her savvy as someone who's been on the world stage and knows the subtleties of diplomacy and signaling. So we, we, we have to assume that that wasn't an accident, right? Right, right, right. 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 
Oh, well, she, she could size people up. She was very, very brilliant at looking into people's eyes and sizing them up. Mm-hmm. Well, she's seen it all. She's uh, anyone who has seen Winston Churchill and known him personally, Harry Truman, Ronald Reagan, all these uh, epic figures. Uh, one can only imagine the wisdom that she has and wisdom that she can't necessarily share all the time because of her station. Um, but uh, again, for our listeners, um, the book is Queen Elizabeth II, An Oral History by Deborah Hart Strober and Gerald Strober. Um, it's a it's a wonderful book. Uh, I, I just loved reading through it, and it's got a beautiful cover. So um, make sure for our listeners, check that book out to learn about a woman who in many ways characterizes just a, a, an incredible era in history. But uh, Deborah and, and Gerald Strober, thank you so much for being on our podcast and just sharing your insights during this, this Platinum Jubilee for the Queen. Thank you thank so you much. Thank you for me. having us. We enjoyed it immensely. And again, thank you very much for your kind comments about our book. Thank you. This American President is produced by myself, Richard Lim, and Michael Neal. If you like what you've been hearing, you can help us by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to our show. I'm Richard Lim. We're back next time with more This American President. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.